Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the book of the Bible I'm going to be looking at this morning. We thank you for all of the Bible, all of the analogy of the faith that we have, the scripture that we hold in our hands that's near and dear to our hearts. I pray, God, that at this time you would open us up in a unique way. I pray, God, that we would not approach the text out of some sort of habit or duty, but, God, that we would approach your holy word in a way where we are teachable, where we are open, where our hearts are laid open wide to what ministry you have for us this morning. Transform us, God, from your truth. Transform us with the, the cutting ministry that, that both wounds and heals our hearts as we open ourselves up to what you are saying to us. Speak to us, Lord, this morning through your holy text, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there are many strategies that are out there, and we're going to be looking in 1 John. You can be turning there, but there are many strategies that are out there for how to build the church today. There's a lot of sort of discussion and dialogue as to how to make your church better in one form or another, how to grow it numerically, how to advance it through programs, how to style it, how to connect with the people, how to reach your community. And there are many times where um, we come together and we talk in terms of what would be the best and most strategic way to move forward as a church. And I've actually participated in the past, in the recent past, in strategic planning strategic planning, being part of a strategic planning committee. You ever been part of one of those? Um, I actually, and this might sound odd to you, but I actually enjoy strategic planning. I think that there are some people who really enjoy looking at, you know, their program, their opportunity, what they're a part of at 30,000 feet, and you kind of plan and dream, and you, you, you talk about your core values, and you talk about your goals, and how do we get there from here, and what are our, what are our plans and agendas that we are trying to accomplish over the next three to five years? Strategic planning, it's something that operations do all of the time. But I have to admit to you, even though I love to do that, I was sort of convicted in my heart by the text we're going to look at in 1 John 1. Thinking about how Christ builds his church, I thought, you know, what, what would it be like if Jesus came to a strategic planning committee to build our church? What would that be like? You know, if he enters into the room, what would Jesus say? What input would he give? You know, what, what sort of thing would he say that we need to do as a church? Well, the only thing I could come up with is uh, sort of a phrase from scripture that Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. He promised to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I thought maybe Jesus would say that. I'm promising to build my church. Maybe he would close the meeting down and say, I've promised to build my church. I'm not sure. But that promise is clear, and it is what we rest in, knowing that God and Christ is, are actively involved. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are actively involved in the building of his church. Jesus is the head of the church. We read earlier he's the cornerstone of the church. He is the, the gospel behind the church. He's driving everything, and he's promised to build it no matter what. The gates of hell, the gates of death. No, nothing can destroy church. You can't kill off church because God is building, and he promised to do that. Now, at the same time, I'm not sure that Jesus would close down the meeting because 
Jesus and the word of God invites us to participate in this kingdom building effort. And what I've sort of tried to do is just become as honest to the text as to what's important to Jesus in terms of building his church, because I want to participate in what's important to Jesus. I want, in other words, I want Jesus's strategic plan, and I just want to get on board and jump on to that car as it's already off and running, okay? I want Jesus's philosophy of ministry to be part of the warp and woof of who I am, because I just want to participate. I just want to be a part of what he's doing, it kind of takes the pressure off in one sense because we don't got to figure anything out more than what he said and prescribed in the scripture. Jesus taught us in scripture and from his teachings, I want to participate in how to do it, how to be part of it. You know, we don't have time to go to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John this morning and sort of cover all of the body of material that we have that was directly um, from the lips of Christ, teachings that he gave to the apostles and to the crowds that heard him. But we can go to one of the gospel writers in John and find in 1 John chapter 1 a summary of all that Jesus taught. A summary statement, just sort of some key values that he said in 1 John 1, Verses 5 through 10. This is, this is what we have. We have a distillation or a summary statement of all Jesus taught. If you look at verse 5, John is talking about the message that he personally had heard from Christ. And this is a summary of the message. You know, John's a good resource, by the way, to learn from. He actually lived with Christ in his ministry for three years. He hung on every word that Jesus said. He saw the miracles of Christ. But what transformed John's heart, what turned the lights on, were the words of Christ, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. That illuminating work happened in John's heart. And John was bonded with Jesus, even personally. He was part of Jesus' small group prayer group with James and Peter. He had privilege to lay across Jesus' chest at Passover. He was called by Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved. He had real intimate access with Christ. So he's very qualified to summarize the teaching of Christ. He knew Jesus, who is called the truth. And he knew what Jesus said and recorded it and then summarized it. So I want Jesus's philosophy of ministry, don't you? Because really to know what Jesus's philosophy of ministry for building his church is really to know the only way to build the church. It's the only authentic church building project that ever is happening in the recorded history or ever will happen. This is a man who was equipped. He was at the end of his ministry when he wrote these words, so he was experienced. He's called in 2nd and 3rd John, the elder John. He's the aged one. And he's trying to protect and guard the churches that were splayed out, the sort of Gentile churches in Asia Minor now, at the end of his ministry. And he's trying to protect them and protect them so that they value the right things as they 
proceed in the mission. It's right before John was going to be exiled on the island of Patmos where he would write the book of Revelation. And he's writing these epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, for them. He wants them to be guarded. And he needed to give them some warnings because there was an attack that was out on the church to sort of dismiss Jesus from the church. Let's just send him out entirely and do it on our own. And John would have none of it. And so he begins in verses 1 through 4. And he talks about, first of all, Jesus Christ himself. And it's important. Before you get to verse 5 and you get to the message of Christ, let me just say this. You've got to start with the person of Christ. Because you really can't have the message of Jesus if you don't have the person of Jesus. They go hand in hand. And if you have the message, message of Jesus, let me just say this. That message will take you right back to the source and there you have Jesus. And so you have Jesus who's the truth. And from Jesus you have the truth. And if you believe the true gospel, then you have the true Christ. And if you have the true Christ, then you have the true gospel. That's why Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. Jesus is the truth. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth in 1 John. And so if you have Jesus, then you have the truth. But if you have the wrong Jesus, or you start to understand him in the wrong way, then you have a distorted or messed up Gospel. And so John starts in verses 1 through 4 just to reestablish who Jesus is and all of his perfection. Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. Well, he's tackling, you know, step one here. Before he talks about Christ's message, he's talking about Jesus Christ. Himself, He says that which was from the beginning, it could be sort of a vague reference to um, the beginning of creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It could be a reference to what John wrote in the Gospels where he said, you know, uh, the beginning happened by the word, which the word is Jesus Christ. All th things were created by him and for him, John 1, 1 and 2. But I think in 1 John 1, 1, John is talking about the beginning of Jesus Christ's ministry. Context here kind of lends towards that. He's talking specifically where life began in John's heart because he got to know Jesus Christ personally. And so he's saying, my heart took off and, and sort of soared as I began to know Christ intimately. Look at this intimate knowledge. He says, that which, meaning Jesus, was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched. He's speaking of knowing Christ in a multi-sensory fashion with three of the five senses. He says, first of all, I heard Christ personally. Why is that important? Well, it's important because John is arguing for the humanity of Jesus Christ here. To have the true Christ, you have to have Jesus who came 
physically. And he's saying, I physically, auditorially heard Christ. Just like, you know, Peter, James, and John heard from the Father on Mount Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. John's saying, listen, I heard Jesus. That's, that's what it means to be an eyewitness. I was there with Christ sitting at his feet when he taught me things. I'm not just some guy who's, who's telling you the latest, greatest way for you to pastor your church. I heard from Jesus personally. And then secondly, he says, we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon. What does he mean? He's saying again, I physically saw with these two eyes, Jesus Christ. I didn't just see him in passing. I physically saw him. This is important. Let me just tell you why. There were people in the church at this stage, probably, you know, A.D. 85, at this stage in the church who were beginning to make things up about Jesus to excuse their sin. That's what was going on. That's how it always is. You change Jesus so you get a pass on your sin. And that's what was happening back here, all the way back in the early church. What they were doing is they were saying, look, you know what? We believe that sin really is all bound up in our flesh, our physical stuff that we're made of. And so Jesus, he couldn't have been really physically here. Now, he was here in some form or fashion, like a, a vision or some sort of ethereal thing up in the clouds or a phantom, you know, that sort of would phase in and out. But he wasn't physically here, right? Because that would mean Jesus is sinful. You say, how does that tie back to getting a pass on sin? Well, if you believe Jesus wasn't here physically because sin is really the physical flesh, then you as a human being say, well, you know, my sin is bound up in my humanness or my physical stuff. But when I get spiritual, like when I go to church, when I float out into the clouds in my spirit as I worship God, I, I'm fine. And the, the sin I do, I'm just a victim of my own flesh. Jesus didn't have flesh, but I do, but I'm a victim of that, and I am floating to the next level away from that, and so I'm really not responsible for what I do. You say, that's a weird thing. How does that connect with nowadays? Well, do you know people who sin all week and then go to church and act like it doesn't matter? There's nothing new under the sun. People find ways to let themselves out of the responsibility for what they do. And so they say, look, what I physically do, I'm a victim of. And, and Jesus had nothing to do with that. But, you know, that's just something in my past. And now I've kind of gone to the next level. And, and what John is doing is he's rushing in. Do you notice how there's no real introduction? There's no pleasantries here. This is sort of a cycle letter where he's just sending him out to church and saying, hey, guess what? Newsflash, Jesus was physically here. I heard him. I saw him and I even beheld him. I looked upon him. I, I knew him personally. I didn't just see him in passing. I used to spend time physically seeing him and have touched with our hands. I've touched him. That specifically means our hands handled. It means he hugged, embraced Christ. He was with Christ. It means to throw your arms around Christ. It was like when Isaac touched Jacob's arms in the Old Testament to see if that was Jacob or Esau. It's the same kind of language here. It's very physical to prove the humanity of Christ. Well, you say, what's really the harm in not saying Jesus was fully human? Well, Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no forgiveness of sins. 
And so if you start to undo the humanity of Christ, you've just undone the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ on your behalf. If you don't have the right gospel, you don't have the right Christ. If you don't have the right Christ, you don't have the right gospel. If you have the truth, it'll take you back to the right source. If you have the source, it'll lead you to the truth. They go hand in hand. They're inextricably linked. And John is saying, listen, Jesus was a man, is a man. But he didn't stop there. He goes on. He says he's the word of life, verse 2. He was manifest, and he also calls him the life. And he calls him, verse 2 in the middle, the eternal life. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's the same idea. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. God, very God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, and co-eternal and co-essential with the Father and the Son. The Trinity, the Godhead, it always has been and always will be. The one true God in three persons. That's what John is saying here, eternal life. He's talking about the eternal life that we experience, but he's naming Christ as eternal life, eternal. That's what the cults always want to undo is the eternality of the Son of God. And they do it to excuse something, but by excusing something, by making Christ a created being, they're losing the message of the gospel and they're losing the true Christ because he's the eternal son of God. Well, that brings us to verse 3 where John now introduces what this means to the church. You say, where's the church? Is the church in this text? Well, it's found in one word that's repeated throughout this text in verse 3. And it's the word fellowship. It's the word fellowship. Look at this. That which we have seen and heard, speaking of Christ, we proclaim or preach also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, don't let me lose you with that word fellowship. It's an old sort of word that's used in southern Bible Belt circles, uh, you know, where you sort of slang it out by saying fellowship. And let's go to the fellowship hall, right? That's what I grew up in. I grew up in a church that had a Fellowship Hall. Not really a bad word, but the Fellowship Hall that I grew up in, you know, it smelled like mildew. It reminded me of stale oatmeal. And it had, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I forget what those games are called that, that you play, shuffleboard, you know, courts on the floor. And that was fellowship to me. But fellowship has a far deeper meaning. It's the koinonia word, which means common or to have in common with. What does that mean? What John is saying is that if you have fellowship, you, 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 if you're part of fellowship, you are in common with God and you are in common with other believers. Another word for that would be to belong. Fellowship is talking about belonging to God and belonging to each other. It's having something so supremely in common with each other that everything else you have in common with each other pales in comparison. You have Jesus Together, because you're not just born again in Christ, you're born again into the body of Christ. You have fellowship. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah for that gift. Amen. We're glad to have fellowship. And what John is making the case here um, to say with fellowship is that as a church, if you are in common life with John, then you are automatically in common life with the Father and with the Son. He says, 
you know, so that you too may have fellowship with us, with all the eyewitnesses, all the apostles. And indeed, if you have that, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4 is the capstone of all of this. And he says, look, your joy will reach its zenith. He's writing these things to you so that your joy will be on full tilt if you understand this to be true about you. Isn't that the greatest sort of um, joy-stoking reality to understand that you're part of something that big? No matter what's going on in your life, you can say, I'm part of the fellowship. I'm part of the communion of the saints. I'm part of church history, past, present, and future. And I'm part of people that love Christ, and I'm part of the fellowship with the Godhead. I'm involved in that. God cares for me and knows me personally. That's what's supposed to take our joy to its zenith. Well, he moves on because once he's established who Jesus Christ is as fully God and fully man, now it's time for him to establish Jesus' message, what he said. And I love this because in a few short verses, he is summarizing all of the body of work, all of the teaching ministry of Christ that John recorded in his gospel, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke recorded in their gospels. All of that body is distilled in a few values of Christ. And again, if we are acknowledging that Christ is building his church on his own foundation, then don't you want to know what that foundation is? what's found here in this text. Because I want to be part of what Christ is building. I want to do my part and be part of the building work as God can use me. But the way that he uses us to build his church is through knowing what he values. To being a part of what is exhilarating to God's heart is for us to step into God's building project and program. Okay, you can't get excited about what Jesus is doing if you don't know what he's doing. If you don't know what he cares about, this is insight into the heart of God as he's building this fellowship called church. Well, with that as a background, let's look at verse 5. A church that's built by Jesus will have a three-part foundation. It's the only way I could put it together. Three-part foundations. One foundation And there's three parts. First part is having a high view of God. A high view of God. That's what we find right out of the chute as a summary statement of Jesus' message. Look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John begins by saying, listen... If you were to summarize all of what Jesus Christ said about God, he's God. He called himself light. Remember John 8, 13? He said he's the light of the world, and in him there is no darkness at all. all. If you were to summarize all of what Jesus said about himself, about the Father, about the Holy Spirit, a summary statement is that God is light. What he means by that is that God is holy and transcendent. You sort of could put all that under the banner of holiness. He's set apart from us. He's perfect. Matthew chapter 5. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Paul said, God dwells in unapproachable 
light. Isaiah 6 said that the angels continue to say in a glorious, loving, worshipful mantra that God is thrice holy. He is beautifully set apart in transcendent glory. He's bigger than we are. He's bigger than his creation. He's bigger than all of the universe. And what John wants Christians to do or these churches to do as they read this statement is for their hearts to lift and say, you know what? I need to understand first and foremost as I think about my church and my involvement, my personal life and what I do and why I do what I do, I need to start it with the holiness of God. Understanding the holiness of God should be one of the most foundational statements or ideas or principles in your Christian life. It should rule your life, the holiness of God. God is separated from all sin. Sin is so pervasive, it's so interwoven even into our own lives as Christians. We're not dominated by sin, but we are still constantly affected and fighting our sinfulness. God doesn't do that. God isn't part of that. God is separated away from that. No temptation can come to God or go from God. James chapter 1. God is set apart as the perfect being of the universe. He never has a sinful thought or action. He never has, there's never a sin associated with a tragedy that happens from him. Nothing escapes his perfect, sinless, holy will. God is perfect. God is light. And we enter into this. We're called children of light in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we're, we're called to follow Jesus who called himself the light of the world. We taste of this light. We've had light come on in our hearts to know this holy one. But we know that we are sinful and John sort of dials into that personal knowledge. We know that we have darkness in our hearts in comparison to God who is light and actually begins to build the case in reverse that you are to understand how holy God is by sort of looking in your own heart and seeing how dark you are. I mean, look at verse 5 again. There is no darkness in God at all. There's a double negative in the Greek there. Ume, there's no capacity for God to have anything sinful in his being or in his mind. He's unmixed in his purity. But on the contrary, there's darkness in us. We are like Paul where we say, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? There's things I want to do, I don't do. There's things I, I do and I don't want to do. You know, I, I, I'm a mess. I have sin in my life. But a way for us to understand God's holiness, because it's such an incomprehensible attribute of God, is to just look at your sin and every time you sin, to say, God's not like that. Jesus, please forgive me and thank you that you're not like that. Holiness. It should be one of the agendas of the church is to promote and declare the holiness of God. Do you want to be part of that mission? Where's that in the strategic planning committee? Let's promote the holiness of God. Let's promote transcendent worship. Let's give towards holiness. Let's serve to promote holiness. That's a contrary message in our society. 
Our society is saying, look, let's blur the lines. Even in church, let's, let's sort of make the church as much like the world to attract the world. And instead, John is saying Jesus' message is for the church to focus on the holiness of God. And the church, I mean, we enjoy the holiness of God, even though we can't fully understand it. We can't even come close to understanding the holiness of God. But we, because the lights are turned on, we have an affection for the holiness of God. We, we have an interest in God's holiness. When we come together at, as church, we're actually expressing that desire to promote holiness and to taste and see that the Lord is good, even if it's just a taste. God is so much bigger than we are. It sometimes can become sort of, um, you know, a, a, a soul-despairing reality when we say, and you are so much more holy than I am. And as I draw close to your holiness, I see the blights and blemishes in my life as if they're, you know, scabs and sores and scars on our sin that's revealed by the ultraviolet light of God's holiness. You know, thinking of the sun as an analogy, 93 million miles away is the sun, and what was it this week that you know, some sort of eruption or explosion in the sun could possibly affect all of the GPS you know, systems around. All of a sudden we're driving around, recalculating, recalculating, you know, who knows. But all that to say, even with a sun that God created, a star that's 93 million miles away that can affect us, that comparison really pales in comparison to how big God is compared to who we are. I mean, God's immense and vastness and immenseness, it just, it's, it's overwhelming where he could just swallow up all of the galaxies that contain all of the suns and all of the solar systems and all of creation in a nanosecond. I was trying to compare this in my mind. I went to a seminar this week on giving analogies and metaphors, so that's why I'm kind of geeked up to do this. But, you know, there's a fireplace. I, I make fires sometimes, you know, and it kind of puts us all at risk. But I put the wood in there, and this ember, you know, if an ember suddenly pops in the wood and starts to float out into our den, I kind of watch that thing, and I think, man, I'm going to have to snuff that out if it gets near my carpet. And if it falls on the hearth, and if I just breathe on it or almost it's almost like if I just think about touching it it's gone like that and that's just sort of a small picture of how big God is compared to the sun or compared to us it's just in a you know just with a whim a thought things happen because of how holy and large and huge and perfect God is it's like a snowflake falling to the ground you you think it's you know perfect in its shape and sort of undiluted by the soil because it's just falling still in the air. But really, that snowflake is falling through contaminants and is contaminated already. God is completely uncontaminated in all of his perfect glory. We belong to holiness, and we should love holiness. But to get to Holiness, we have to first understand something about ourselves, and that is our sinfulness. And that is the second part of the foundation that must be understood if you're going to understand how Christ is building his church. You have to have a high view of God, and then secondly, you have to have a low view of man. We find this beginning in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John here is talking about a hypothetical scenario. He's talking about someone who's in church, 
who lives one way and talks another. Somebody who says, I'm a professing believer, I love Jesus Christ, and then they live like the world. Not just trip up and fall some, but as a lifestyle and a general rule, it's a person that doesn't have a thought or care about God whatsoever when he's outside of church, when he's outside of the fellowship. He's got a profession that basically undercuts and exposes his heart. A profession that doesn't hold up because his lifestyle absolutely contradicts it. Guess what? This was the testimony of all of us before we became a Christian, especially if we were raised in the church. If we were around believers and sort of fitting in and saying one thing or singing songs and living contrary to that message. And that's what John is propping up here for the church and saying, listen, as Christ is building this fellowship, you better watch out for hypocrisy. Churches, societies, but let's just stay in the church for a second. Churches want to give people the pass on this. They want to let that go and say, listen, we are commanded not to judge. I'll leave God to judge that person's sin. Or, you know, I can't totally know the motive for why that person is doing what that person's doing, living in licentiousness or sin. I can see it in scripture, but who am I to judge? I'm not God. We'll leave it to God to deal with that person. Well, John is saying, look, no, we need to have clear discernment so that we can help people out of a situation where they're lying to themselves. John is addressing people who are under the cloud delusion of self-deception. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. Just think of that word deceitful. People are born with hearts that lie to themselves and tell themselves how to rationalize doing wrong things. You're living with a liar in your life. It's called your heart. Now, our hearts get redeemed, but we still have the sinful sort of um, hangover or the sinful effects of our hearts where we are still lied to. And even in the body of Christ, where there are Christians who are beginning to live hypocritically, we need to go to their aid and help them and say, listen, have you ever considered what the Bible says. We need to introduce the medicine of truth to sort of take the, the, the sin edge off and clear the fog in the head so that a person could say, yeah, I need to get back on track. That's how Jesus is building his church, by awakening his church to the problem of hypocrisy. And it, it just takes uh, the church, you know, the church is responsible to take a hard look at itself and say, I need to have a realistic biblical view of man. In the midst of a world that's telling man and mankind that it's not that bad. Now there are gross and horrible and awful things we see on the news where the world wakes up in its conscience and says, that's bad. Doing that to a child is bad. Doing that to a person or a parent or, or a, you know, a town, that's bad. That's evil. They deserve the electric chair. But that's few and far between. Instead, what we hear often is, listen, life is all about you and all about propping yourself up so that even though you feel bad, you need to talk yourself into feeling good about yourself. You need to value yourself and you need to prop yourself up. You need to get drunk with yourself so that you feel better about how you feel bad about yourself in your life. That's what the world teaches. And what the Bible teaches is something different than that. The Bible teaches that we were created 
as the pinnacle of God's creation. Let me just digress. We are made in the image of God, very God. We are the thinkers on this world. We are the creators on this earth. We are displaying the majesty of God in how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are eternal beings and souls that are created for one primary purpose, not to worship ourselves, but to worship God. And the only way we can worship God is if we understand that we are sinners that need a savior. And so even though we're the pinnacle of creation, we have to deal with the fact that we are born in sin, enemies of God, straying from God, sheep that have gone astray, walking in the wrong direction, on the wide road that leads to destruction, justly so, on our way to hell, and we need a reversal. We need an intervention that comes by the gospel. It starts with understanding that we are sinners. To deny this is to deny Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're not there. We're not glorious. We're not glorified yet. We're sinners. And John is reiterating the message of Christ, which is to say that there are hypocrites in the church. Uh, 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us. These are false teachers. Why? But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. People are hypocritical. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. There are people who are deluded and, and sort of dismissing the fact that they are sinners. And the church is a place that loves holiness. And when it loves holiness, it exposes sinfulness. And it exposes the fact that we need a savior. That's church. And that's how Christ is building his church with a foundation like this. Where the truth comes to bear on the life. We're going to skip back to verse 7, but just quickly move to verse 8. This will sort of bridge into point 3. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. What do people do? When they give themselves a pass, they hear the truth, and they say, you know what, that doesn't apply to me. That's not for me. I'm not that bad on the scales of things. I'm not as bad as that person or this person. As a matter of fact, this person was teaching just the other day the heresy that, you know, Jesus was more of a spirit being because flesh is separated from him. So really, my flesh, when it acts up, I'm just a victim to that. And I'm no better or worse than anybody else. They're all dealing with that. But, oh, I can get to glory during worship time. So I'm okay. I don't have to deal with that. And what John is saying is, no, if you say you don't have any sin, then you're denying God's word in your life. You're not listening to what God is saying to you from the word. That's why Paul, even as a believer and an apostle, said, a wretched man that I am. I, I do things I don't want to do. I don't do things I want to do. This is real in my life because he was listening to what the Bible said. And that brings us to the third foundation stone, which is the authority of Scripture, verses 8 through 10, but look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We're making God a liar now if we, we sin and we have no regard for our sin. 
You know, how bad is it when you are sinning and you're unaccountable? It's so bad that it's as if you're making God's word and God himself a liar about what he says to be true about you. That's how ludicrous that is. That's how, I mean, it's shocking a statement like that is and, and needed to be made. It's the only kind of statement that can wake us up where we say, wow, so we're actually flying in the face of God's truth and God himself and saying that God is a liar if we just disregard our sinfulness and actually pretend that it's not there. You know, I remember one time when I was in seminary and I had just become a deacon at the church where I was serving and sort of was wrestling with an issue in my own heart. And I was confessing to this person in the church, this godly saint in the church, and was talking my way clear and saying, you know, I, I have anxieties over my sinfulness and things that I don't want to do. Sort of giving this Romans 7 confession to that person. And this, this person finally looked at me and said, listen, it's when you stop caring about your sin, that's when you're really in trouble. It's when you begin to harden up and just let it go. That's when it's really a problem. I'd rather work with somebody that's condemning themselves and sort of seeing their sin than somebody who's completely hardened up and ignoring it altogether. I'd rather beef somebody up into the grace of God rather than trying to convince them that, listen, you're headed the wrong way. But all of this comes clear with the word of God. The word says, and again, you can't separate the word from its source, but the word says that we are sinners. And, and it says that the word is truth because God always tells the truth. Numbers, uh, Numbers 23 says that God cannot lie. Titus 1-2 says God cannot lie. And so God's conscience is brought to bear as the God of truth, the spirit of truth on our lives. And it's inescapable. That's why we, we hold high the word of God. There's no medicine to give anybody at church. There's no, there's no salve to an open wound without the word of God. There's no, there's no scalpel that can go and cut the infection away from someone's wound if we don't give the truth. That's why we dedicate a good portion of our service to the word of God. That's why I read it at the top of the hour, the word of the living God, because God's authority comes into the room when his word is brought to bear on our lives. What I'm saying is not from my own authority. It's always from the word of God. Anything that would come across authoritative for me, dismiss. It's got to be the Bible. It's the Word. It's God's mind. It's, it's His heart in the room to help us, to, to bridge us from our sinful darkness to His glorious light. The authority of Scripture. Without the Word of God, we really are like a GPS messing up saying recalculating. We really are, you know, sitting in the ocean, drifting along where we look up all of a sudden and we don't know where we are. One time I was in the Prince William Sound with one of you in the congregation and suddenly I didn't know where I was and I was looking at a map and we had drifted and, and got our bearings wrong and suddenly we were on the back of the map and had to find our way back to the front of the map. It's a good thing we had a map, but without the word of God, we are flying with no navigation controls whatsoever. And what the church will do when it's not being built by Christ is they'll get Jesus out of the church and they'll get his word out of the church, okay? 
They'll get the, they'll start worshiping the wrong Jesus and you'll start hearing the wrong message. You're not hearing the message of Christ. And so to be part of a program that is authentically Jesus building the church, it has to be established upon the true Christ and his true message. Now, what do you do as a believer? We know that we're sinners. We know that we have darkness in our hearts. We know that we have problems. We're not sort of hard-hearted hypocrites who are unaware of our sins. So, so how do we find relief? Well, it's found in verses 7 and 9. Just look at 7 real quickly. It says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we're true believers, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. When you use a technical word just to lose you for a second and, and regain you, that's an indicative this is the indicative. You know what this means? It means there is something that is going on on your behalf, whether you know it or not. It's something that's ongoingly happening for you. And this is to give you relief and to give you hope. Because God is light and we know how sinful we are. We only have one hope. And that is verse 7, which is that the blood of Jesus Christ is continually applied to your soul. Now, just to summarize in short, when Jesus died on the cross, the blood of Jesus was spilt. The blood of Jesus represents a bloody death that happened one time. And when you were saved, you were washed at a point in time. You are standing in that grace and nothing can change that about you. And John just wants to, he wants to argue for us the fact that nothing can change. You can't out the cross. You can't take yourself out of grace. You're there. But salvation, salvation is applied to your past, and it's applied to your present, and it's applied to your future. You are saved at a point in time, and you're, you're being grown in Christ by the grace to ultimately be glorified where all of the sin hangover, all of the sin residue is washed away. And what verse 7 is saying is this, be comforted, dear friend, dear Christian, because as you sin tomorrow or in the next hour, the blood of Jesus Christ is ongoingly taking care of that in the present. Don't need a priest. You don't need to, you know, cross yourself. You don't need to go to confession. You need to reflect upon the fact that Jesus' blood and his grace is ongoingly covering any sins that you will do from here on out. That's what this text promises. But you say, listen, I still feel bad. I still sin. I still mess up. And I, I hurt when I grieve the Holy Spirit. I hurt when I grieve my Father's heart. Well, that's what verse 9 is for. This is, if verse 7 is the indicative, then this is the imperative. This is the command of what we are to do. That's what imperative means. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confession is one of my favorite words in the Bible. It, it's homilageo. It's to say or speak words that are the same words that God already knows to be true about you. That's what confession is. Well, I sinned. God already knows it, so I'm just going to leave it. No. John says, in private confession, you are to ongoingly acknowledge your sin because you're a son or daughter of God and you want to be in right relationship with you. When you say, I've sinned so much that God the Father doesn't want to take me back, that's not true. If you have a child that's 
ever sinned against you, you know that you wait for that child with open arms for restoration. That's God's relationship to us. I was thinking, you know, I've been away and I walked into my bathroom upstairs. At the, that's the kid's bathroom. And wow, you know, that thing was destroyed. There, Owen had taken some toothpaste as a three-year-old and basically painted the countertop. I'm offended by that. But I love Owen and he's only three. If Owen comes back to me and says, Daddy, even if he doesn't, but if he does and says, Dad, I, you know, I should not have done that, you think I'm going to dismiss that? No, that's a restoration moment. But he's still my child, no matter if he says that or not. And that's what 1 John 1, 9 is. And there's justice in this verse because it says God is faithful. He'll always take us back and just, which means that based on the blood of Jesus Christ in verse 7, he is justified to always take us back. The holy God whose light can always receive his children back to himself in a relational way. Why? Because of the justice of the cross. Nothing changes when we sin as a Christian except our relationship is hindered until we confess our sins to God and enjoy the fellowship that's promised to us in him. Well, here's a couple applications. And these applications you can just take home and think about on your own. But, you know, again, Christ's message is to have a high view of God, a low view of man, and base your life on the authority of God's word. Second, the basis for testing the health of your gospel is Christ's message. You might say, you know, I've never really looked at the gospel in this level or of depth or, or understanding. Well, you have to test your knowledge of the gospel with Jesus's message. So understanding that God is holy and high and we're sinful and the authority of scripture is the rule for our life, that's what you test every gospel message with. Every sermon that's preached here or elsewhere, you wanna test it according to Jesus's teaching. Christ's message is the basis for testing the health of your church. Some of you go to this church, some of you might go to other churches, but you want to test the health of your church according to these values because Jesus's philosophy of ministry is the only biblical or right philosophy of ministry. This isn't just my philosophy, this is Jesus's philosophy of ministry, and so you want to follow this in terms of your church. Four, is Christ's message the basis for testing the health of your relationships? You are who you hang around. You want to spend time with people that love God like Jesus promotes God, that understand sin and love the Bible. Now, you can have friendships and relationships with all kinds of people, but I want friends that love what Jesus loves. That's fellowship. Number five is Christ's message, the basis for testing the health of your soul. Some of you perhaps are not Christians. My ongoing prayer is that unbelievers can walk in the room, can hear the gospel, and can believe. And this is a gospel sermon. This is a sermon from 1 John to any of you who don't yet know Christ. And maybe you're saying, look, I don't know this holy God. I don't know this God personally. I've been convicted of a specific sin that I have not yet repented of. Well, perhaps for you today is the day of salvation. It's time to turn to the living Lord. When you're joining into fellowship, you're not just joining a local church. You're joining into the body of Christ. And perhaps the Lord is calling you into his body this morning. And that's our prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your 
once for all established faith.